pray. Father, we once again come to hear from your word. And sometimes when we come, your explicit words fill us with delight because they are filled with your promises and your reminder of how gracious and compassionate you are. And there are other times when we read your word and we realize you're trying to expose weakness and sin. And that too is part of the gospel, exposing our need of grace because of the, the sickness in our hearts. Lord, we remember who we were before we first believed and how you redeemed us. We ask you, Father, to remind us of it this morning, not only so that we can be appropriately introspective, but so that we would understand better why you have called us to minister the word of God. Oh, Father, we pray that Jesus would be exalted and the hearts of your people would be encouraged as we are reminded of the importance of the bedrock of your truth, your scriptures, and the need for them to be proclaimed and ministered. Lord, we love you and we praise you for this time together and we ask you to speak to us. May you find hearts that are docile to the Spirit this morning and we pray it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you're new with us this morning, we have been working through the epistle of 2 Timothy. The epistle of 2 Timothy, and you can open your Bible there now, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. Just by way of introduction, it occurs to me that in my early years of travel over to the former Soviet Union, it was not uncommon to hear amazing stories about the spiritual hunger of the people when the Berlin Wall came down and the former Soviet Union collapsed. For 70 years, there had been a famine in the land, not a famine for bread, although there was that. But more importantly, there was a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. During those seven decades, most churches, their gatherings were basically illegal. Not all, but most were illegal. And congregations often were relegated to having to meet in snow-covered forests in the dead of winter, where they were least likely to be discovered, and yet they met anyway. And may I remind you that when their tradition is when they meet, they have three sermons, and they would stand in the cold so that they could be together as a church family. I learned of pastors who had been arrested and sent to labor camps in Siberia or shot simply because they were teaching about God, which was anathema. In the, so in the former Soviet Union under communism. I heard about shortwave radio stations from South America, which offered programs that did nothing but read the scriptures very deliberately and slowly so that people on the other side of the world who were in the lands of Russia could write down the scriptures and get for themselves a handwritten copy of the word of God. When the wall came down in November 9th, 1989, the American church wondered, what would we find when we go in? Will there even be a church? And the reality was, there was a church. It, it didn't take long to find out. Turns out that they not only survived, but they thrived under persecution. They had not capitulated. 
to the Western pressure toward liberalism. How could they? All they had was their Bibles. You have to go to school to learn liberalism. But if you're just reading your Bible, you come away with sound doctrine. And that's what we found. But the reality is hardly anyone in the former Soviet Union had a Bible. Very few. And of course, as soon as this became known to uh, the, the ministries in the United States, airplanes and truckloads of Bibles in, written in Russian, printed in Russian, began to arrive all over the form former Soviet Union countries. Everybody wanted the Bible. Everybody wanted the Bible. No sooner did a case of Bibles come off a truck than they were devoured immediately. I know men over there who said, all they had to do was hold their hand out with a stack of Bibles and they would disappear within seconds. Everyone wanted the Bible and everyone wanted to hear the gospel. This is reminiscent of the historical tales that we've read about during um, colonial American times. How the people on that day responded to the preaching of men like George Whitfield. In the 1700s, the Spirit of God moved with, with in extraordinary ways under Whitfield's preaching. And when it was announced where he would land in the next pulpit, um, people would make any sacrifice. In fact, they had to give tickets when he was preaching indoors because uh, too many people would show up. The only way to, to engage in crowd control was to give tickets for the number of seats. Eventually, he began preaching in the open air to accommodate the crowds. But when it was announced that he was about to preach in such and such a place, tens of thousands, tens of thousands would make any sacrifice necessary to get to that place to hear the word of the Lord proclaimed. And thousands upon thousands received Christ at those gatherings under the preaching of of this man, the Great Awakening, both in England and America, broke out, and untold numbers were transformed. What, a, what an amazing time that must have been. What an amazing experience it must have been for these young pastors to preach the Word of God, to stand in a pulpit or on a street corner or on top of a table in the middle of a field, as Whitfield so often did, and preach to the hungry masses, to preach to the coal miners who would come out of the mines covered in soot. And Whitfield said the only thing they could see that was not black was, was the tear gutters on their face as they listened to the word of God being preached and wept. This was the privilege of such men as John and Charles Wesley, although John Wesley certainly went astray in his doctrine, and, and other men, Jonathan Edwards, who many attribute to having begun the Great Awakening, that's probably not true. It was probably Whitfield. And Methodism, which is attributed to John Wesley, but it probably wasn't. It was George Whitfield. And men like Edwards and Brainerd and, and Whitfield and many other unknown, unsung, faithful ministers of the time when the Spirit of the Lord moved in extraordinary ways and the people were hungry to hear it. But what's a minister to do 
in a day when it seems hardly anyone has an appetite for hearing the word of the Lord. Moreover, how do you faithfully minister the word when the, even the church itself turns her back on the scriptures? That's a good question, because that seems to be the general spiritual atmosphere that has repeatedly descended upon the church through the ages. In the early years of the church, the church gave way to sacramentalism, the sacramentalism of the Roman Catholic deviation. And then came rationalism, followed by mysticism and pragmatism and, and all kinds of other isms. In the early 20th century, psychology became all the rage in the church. And Darwin's theory of evolution was coupled with it. And when you put Darwinian uh, evolution and mix it with psychology, you, you really have a major apostasy going away from the scriptures. And these are the very things that Paul was speaking about in 2 Corinthians 10, where he said, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are divinely app appointed, divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. And we, we hear about strongholds all the time, and almost never are we talking about what Paul was talking about. We talk about the stronghold of bitterness, or the stronghold of pornography, or the stronghold of overeating, or lack of dieting, or whatever it is. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about this, if you just continue reading the text. One of those strongholds, he says, we destroy every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul's mission was to faithfully proclaim the word of God and to demolish every teaching that distracted or diverted people away from the teaching of the word of God. And that's why Paul warns in our text for this morning, down in verse 13, he says this, Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yes, there are enemies of the church who are outside of the church, who are in our culture. But the greatest enemies that assault the church are not the ones that come from the outside. It is the ones who come from the inside, the influential imposters who are in the church and lead people away from Christ. That is a ministry of the gospel or a minister of the gospel or even just a, a, a Christian. How do, you, how do people minister the word of God in an atmosphere of apostasy? In our passage this morning, I think Paul offers six points of instruction to help prepare Timothy to serve as a faithful minister of the word of God in an atmosphere of apostasy. And what Paul calls these end times. And here are his six. You won't find them all in your bulletin, because as I was going through it, I realized I wouldn't make it through uh, point number one. So we'll do point one this morning. But here's where we're going. Number one, expect a general apostasy. Number two, be alert for duplicitous deceivers. Number three, rest in a sovereign promise. Number four, follow a worthy example. Number five, 
embrace a sobering reality. And number six, fulfill your foremost calling. It's going to take us a few weeks to get to this, and I want to show you where we're headed beyond that, because this is all germane to where we're going. And you'll see in verse 16, verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, this, this famous text is right here, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Why is that in this context? The context here is, Timothy, you are, you are ministering in a world of apostasy. Even in the local churches, there is apostasy. In these last days, there will be opposition. How do you minister? And the answer is, you focus on the Word of God. And then to make that point very, very clear, verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the Word. So that's where we're going, right? That's where this text is taking us. How do you minister in these last days? Answer, remember Scripture is the message, and preach that message. Preach the word. It is your prime directive, Timothy, and it is the prime directive of every preacher and every Christian who wants to be faithful to minister for Christ in these last days. Now, before we unpack God's, Paul's instruction here and God's instruction, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such men, for among them are those who creep into, the, into houses and captivate weak women burdened down with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned them. And we'll just finish out the chapter. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. So the question is, how do we minister in these last days? And the answer we get to in verse 16, that the scriptures themselves, having been breathed out by God, they are sufficient for training in righteousness and for every good work. It may take a couple of weeks to get to that conclusion, but I want you to know where we're going from the start. And so here we go. Number one, how do you, how do you minister in these last days? Number one, make sure your expectations are right. And here it is, the way it's worded in your bulletin. Expect a general apostasy. You recall that in the final verses of chapter 2, Paul instructs Timothy to gently correct certain opponents in hopes that God perhaps might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and maybe escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. And then we come upon this chapter, chapter 3, and the first word we read is, but. This is a contrast. Paul is introducing a contrast. In the previous verse, he was speaking about certain opponents who need to be corrected. But understand this. Kind of get the sense that he's, he previously was talking about certain individuals who need to be who need to be confronted, but don't think it's going to be one here and one there, and most of the time you're not going to have to deal with them. Understand, rather, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Not just individual people, but times. In other words, we need to expect that there will not only be isolated circumstances of difficulty, but times, or seasons, or epics, or waves of difficulty. And these waves of difficulty will be marked by apostasy in the church. And we could go through the history of the church and demonstrate that. John MacArthur does a great job with that. I'm not going to try to duplicate that, except to name a few things, a few of the waves that have come across the church and have been adopted by the church. Um, we understand, don't we, that when the New Testament authors speak about the last days, they're referring to the times that are between the first arrival of Christ and the return of Christ. We can demonstrate that by the text themselves. In, first, in Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, he refers to that time as the last days. And the author of Hebrews likewise declares in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, he he says that in these last days, God has spoken in his Son. In John, 1 John 2.18, the Apostle Paul says it a little bit differently. He says, children, it is the last hour. It's been a really long hour since he wrote that. But this is the last times. These are the last days. And so Paul is speaking to Timothy about his day and our day, his time and our time, we are in 
the last days. And in these last days, we should not think that our ministry is going to be easy. Rather, we should expect that there will often be There'll often be people who minister the word in an, in an atmosphere that is consistent with apostasy. And th- in fact, they are contributing to the problem. It will be a time when people will not want to hear the word of the Lord. It'll be a time when they are learning from their spiritual leaders apostate teaching. In fact, Paul's already talked about this back in his first letter to Timothy. Listen to the words of Paul, 1 Timothy 1.4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And what days is he referring to? The last days. And what days are they? They are his days and ours. He's telling Timothy. He, he, he told him years earlier in, first, in the first letter, you've got to be prepared for this. You've got to be prepared for this. And so you see, Paul wants Timothy to be prepared for the, apostles, uh, the apostasy, which was already taking place. People not always will flock to you to hear the word of the Lord like they did when they ran to George Whitfield. In fact, that's never happened with me. Of course, it never happened with Edwards either. Uh, George Whitfield was an amazing, amazing spirit-filled, I mean, a unique man called of God and empowered by God. But people won't always be hungry to hear the word of the Lord as they were after the collapse of the wall. Much of your ministry will be to people who are going to push back against the clear teaching of the word and the gospel itself. And many of them will proclaim that they are followers of Christ. It happens all the time. I could give you examples from the past two weeks, maybe past one week. Um, if you're going to talk to people, you're going to hear about the most apostate theological ideas, and then you're going to spring the question on them. <laughs> if you were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? And they'll say, oh, I know God. I know Jesus. I know the gospel. I know if I die today, I'm going to heaven. And you think, There's no way. There's no way you can believe what you say you believe and be a follower of Christ. This is what Paul is talking about. They're going to push back against the clear teaching of the word of God. And they have learned much of their error in church. How do we know his concern is about people in the church primarily? Well, listen to how Paul describes them. Verse 4 The expectation here in verse 4 is that they should be lovers of God. I mean, mean, that's the first mark of a Christian, right? We're called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first commandment. Love God, and yet they don't. They love pleasure. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And verse 5, they have the appearance of godliness. In other words, they strive to be seen as godly. But at the same time, they deny the Spirit's power, the the power to change them, the power to understand Scripture, the power to overcome sin. In verse 7, they're always learning but never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. They say they're having Bible studies, but they have no real interest in what the Bible actually teaches. I know people like this, dear people, wonderful people, and they have Bible studies in their house. I, I know a couple an older couple that are um, 
from a liberal Presbyterian church in our community. They have Bible studies at the house, and they don't believe hardly a word of it. And, and they delight to meet together and read the Bible. And so Paul is not talking about a time of resistance from irreligious people, but from people who claim to be religious. They claim to be Christian. They may even be in your church. And, and let, me, let me just say, I'm, I'm not hinting, nor do I believe that we have a corner on the truth and we always get it right and that there would be no one at Calvary Bible Church who is the object of what Paul is describing. To the contrary. I assume there are unbelievers among us. I assume there are religious unbelievers among us every week. I, I, I pray there's not many of them. I don't think there are many. But I'm not under the delusion that it's impossible at Calvary Bible Church to experience the very thing that the Apostle Paul is warning Timothy. And beloved, that's why we have to be, we have to be diligent with the gospel. Even here, even among ourselves, diligent with the gospel, calling all men everywhere to repent and believe and find their joy in their maker. They may even be here, and, and in fact, I, I think sometimes there are. In fact, there are they're in many churches. These are people and whole denominations who say they're followers of Jesus, but whose lifestyle and beliefs and religious practices are blatantly contrary to the teaching of Scripture. What are the characteristics of such people? Well, Paul stuns us here with 18 characteristics. 18. Count them. Or I'll count them for you as we go. 18 characteristics of religious people who are living in various stages of apostasy. And Paul explains, for people will be, first of all, lovers of self. Lovers of self. You know, I think even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I don't think even Paul knew how pervasive and all-consuming this characteristic would become in the modern church. In our day, the psychological doctrine of self-esteem has rolled through the Western world and through the church like a great philosophical tsunami. And it is so well established now, nobody even debates it. It's no longer an issue. It's settled. The most fundamental virtue of our time is love thyself. To your own self be true. You do you, I'll do me. When Eric Erickson and Abraham Maslow introduced the doctrine of self-esteem, they were convinced that if they could just get everyone to love themselves, the psychological disorders would simply melt away. And to the contrary, I mean, all kinds of new disorders have sprung out of the self-esteem doctrine and has gotten into the church and what we often call the self-esteem gospel, which is no gospel at all. Instead, it has created a world of fundamentally narcissistic humans who are committed not to loving our country or loving their neighbor or even loving God, but loving themselves. If you doubt that, consider the following terms. Selfie generation. It's stunning to think of the number of people who have lost their lives recently 
attempting to take a selfie. Or consider the growing number of women in our country who have publicly engaged in sologamy. Sologamy. It's very quiet in the room right now. I expect you have no idea what that is. Sologamy happens, let me explain this to you, when a person, usually a woman, organizes a public ceremony by which, while gazing into a mirror and reciting something akin to formal vows, she marries herself. Sologamy. Don't go home and look it up. But, but I was shocked when I did this week. I, I thought it was one or two people. It is not. It's, it's kind of a whole movement now among women who want to be empowered and not be under the control of men, so they marry themselves. Full ceremony. The doctrine of self-love has brought narcissism to the church, and so Paul warns against lovers of self, lovers of self, and, and then secondly, lovers of money. I, I think we might safely say that being a lover of self is the root of the other 17 vices he identifies here. A person whose first love is himself is, is going to need to be a lover of money to support the relationship. <laughs> Might have to think about that for a second. <laughs> the scriptures are replete with warnings about being a lover of money. The Pharisees were called lovers of money. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, Paul warns, this is in the church, at Ephesus in, in particular. Paul warns through Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Listen, let's just make this clear. The way of the transgressor is hard. And the one who runs after another god his sorrows will multiply. And yet they seem so appealing. They seem like better gods, though religious people would never dare say so. The next two characteristics, proud and arrogant, are like a two-headed monster. They're gathered together, they're joined together, and they can never be separated. And proud means boaster or braggart. This is one of the many pious fruits of the tree of self-love, being proud and boastful. Boasting is nothing more than self-worship. I love me, I worship me, and I want others to worship me too. And then there's arrogance. It's kind of the same thing. It's sometimes translated haughty. This is when a person loves himself so much he's consistently exalting himself over others. He is the epitome of one-upmanship. The word that rolls off his tongue more often than any other is I, if that doesn't convict you. Then you may be alone in this room. An arrogant person tends to have a mean streak about his pride, especially when it seems that someone else is gaining the upper hand or getting more glory. Perhaps that's why there's this next characteristic, abusive. It seems fitting that the Greek word for abusive here, are you ready for this, is blasphemos, from which we get the word blasphemer or blasphemy. A blasphemer is one who defames, 
one who denigrates, one who insults and slanders others. To blaspheme God is to insult, insult him or accuse him of evil. To blaspheme is to engage in verbal hatred against another. And of course, this is the only beginning of the sins of the abuser. It only starts with verbal, and it moves on to all sorts of other things. And then disobedient to parents. Does that surprise you? That Paul would put that in the list? It's been said that love and obedience toward parents was one of the most central virtues of antiquity. If you were, uh, were a child who grew up in this society and you were known as one who was disobedient to his parents, you probably weren't going to get very far. Who would trust you? One who could not even obey their father and mother was not to be trusted. And, and boy, this, this, this needs to be developed in our time. Uh, when we first came to Calvary, I mean, parenting was a really, really big deal, and we were constantly delving into how do we do this. And, and, and I'm not sure that happens as much anymore. Uh, I, I think many parents are just doing it according to their own understanding. They're making it up. They're not consulting the Word of God at all. In our day, general disobedience among children is epidemic, even in the church. But it shouldn't surprise us. I mean, after decades of training parents to love themselves, to be true to themselves, to esteem themselves, and be loyal to themselves, do we expect children to love others and be submissive to others, to be obedient, to be happy in their obedience? A self-love-oriented home will produce a child-centered home. You show me a child-centered home, and I will show you an unhappy child. You show me a child-centered child, and I will show you an unhappy home. That's why, by the way, God, who loves you more than you can imagine, has issued the following command. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And not only that, it is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the earth. It is the God who loves us, who has commanded us to obey him for our good and to train our children to obey him by obeying the authorities over them, namely their parents. Ungrateful is the next one. This means they are thankless. One of the marks of an unbeliever in Romans chapter 1 is that they don't give thanks. Or unholy is the next one. These are people in the church who look clean and godly on Sunday morning. Away from the church, however, they live just like the world. It's a person whose self-love drives him to gratify his lustful passions in immoral behavior, godless entertainment, and the abuse of, of what they refer to as their liberties. Liberties that, if you understand what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, he's saying they are there for you to set aside for the benefit of your brother. Today, the larger evangelical church, there are those who even call themselves, we're talking about unholy here, call themselves homosexual Christians. 
And I get it. There are people who struggle with same-sex attraction. I get that. And God bless them. It's, it's a heavy burden. They need to bear it. And it is hard, like your temptation that you struggle with and can be overcome by the Holy Spirit. These are, this is not the kind of people Paul is talking about who have those feelings, same-sex or, same orientation or, or same-sex attraction, but they're, but they're not fighting it. They're not battling it. They've just accepted it, and they expect the church to accept it as well. And here's what we will do. We'll love them. We'll bless them. We'll serve them. We'll be good to them. We'll bring them to the gospel like we do everyone else. We'll treat them the way the, the word of God causes us to treat them. I don't know why Christians are accused of hatred. I've never, I've never met a Christian who hates homosexuals or divorced people or any, anybody else. We know our sin. We know our own sin. We're not condemning you for yours. But neither do we wave the rainbow flag and say that sin doesn't matter. It does matter. My sin matters. Their sin matters. Your sin matters. And we confront it with caution. We confront it with love and grace. We confront one another's sin that way. And we are not going to be a church that just throws the, the membership door open and says, anybody who wants to come, bring your sin and your, your evil practices, and no one is going to confront that. It'll be confronted if it's a real church. And then there's heartless this word can be translated unloving or without natural affection is really more literally what it means. This points back to the home characterized by abuse. According to the Bible, to love is to give. But to this kind of person, life is all about taking from others in order to please self. This person is heartless. He has no concern for others. He knows nothing about weeping with those who weep. They're only concerned about their own welfare and their own pleasure. And then unappeasable. This might be translated unreconcilable. Now, this is someone who just doesn't have the ability to confess his own sins. When, when I'm getting ready to hire someone on staff at Calvary Bible Church, one of the questions I always ask is, when was the last time you asked for forgiveness? That'll tell me a lot about you. Have you ever when was the last time you asked for forgiveness? Are you, are you not a sinner? If you're a sinner, you should be asking for forgiveness from God and from whoever you offend. But, but the unreconcilable will never, they'll never admit their own sin. And, and if they do, they'll blame it on someone else. Yes, I did that, but she made me. And then there's slanderous. You, you may be interested to know that in the Greek, the word for slanderous is diaboloi, or diabolos in the noun form, which is the common word for devil. The devil is a slanderer from the beginning. This is a person who feels the need to constantly put others down. They're malicious gossips who often don't even realize that their motive is to harm others with their words. And you know what? That happens in churches all the time. 
And uh, not to pick on ladies here, um, but this is so common among women in the church. I'm not saying in this church, but it's real common. Uh, I remember the story of a, of a lady who's still a member of Calvary Bible Church. They first came to Calvary, and there was a Christmas uh, get-together for the ladies in one of the homes. And, and I asked her the next day that I saw her, uh, how, was, how was the ladies' gathering? And she said, I cried all the way home. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> Why? 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 Why did she? I really don't want to hear the answer. <laughs> but why? And she, she said, I'll tell you why. She said, I, I, I went from conversation to conversation, conversation, conversation. Never once did I hear a woman slander her husband or talk about what a bad marriage they had or how they'd been done wrong by the guy they married. No one. She said, I have never been to a church where that was true. She wept all the way home. And her and her husband have been members here ever since. Um, the next one is without self-control. Self-control, you know, is, is a fruit of the Spirit. This person has no command over his impulses and desires. He has jettisoned his inhibitions and shame and doesn't care what people think. Perhaps he's addicted to alcohol. I read one publication that said that the foremost sin among young church planters, you hear this? The foremost sin among young, and this was an organization that specializes in sending out church planters. They're always doing statistical analysis and all this stuff. And they came to the conclusion that the foremost sin among their own church planters uh, was drunkenness. Such men are pastors of churches, and yet, as MacArthur points out, they are like driverless cars careening hap haphazardly and crashing into whatever gets in their way. The lover of self essentially loses control of his own life and becomes a slave to his passions. And the next one is brutal. Again, you can probably not imagine how much domestic abuse takes place in the church. Um, but it does. It does. And then not loving good, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. But this person thinks about only fulfilling his lusts. He calls good evil and evil good. Can a professing believer support killing babies in the womb? A professing believer happens all the time. Happens all the time. But by the time a person begins calling evil good and good, in good evil, she's already cultivated a heart that can justify anything, no matter how directly the word of God addresses the issue. And then there's treacherous. This is a traitor or a betrayer. This is someone who has no regard for contracts, promises, or vows. They may marry, but they have little understanding, nor will they stay in keeping with that covenant. When, they, when, they, when the going gets tough, they, they punch out. They're just out. This is the exact opposite of a man 
described in Psalm 15, where David says that this man who pleases the Lord swears to his own hurt and does not change his mind. Psalm 15, verse 4. Even in, even in the church, it's sometimes difficult to find a man who has that level of integrity, who loves God and his neighbor more than self. I mean, you, you look at these things and you think, listen, the first time you look at them and you're hearing me say this and they, and they sound awful and terrible, and they are. And you think, oh, those people, what church is he talking about? This can't be our church. And upon more introspection, you start going back through the list and you go, oh, oh yeah, I've done that. Oh, yeah, I've thought about doing that. Oh, I've really contemplated that. Oh, yeah, that was me last week. reckless person is willing to try anything. I remember as a teenager, we used to say that all the time. Try anything once. That was dumb. <laughs> Praise God. I don't know how I survived. They're thoughtless. They're self-centered. Um, and, and the list goes on. My pages are stuck together. Swollen with conceit. It means puffed up. It's another mention of pride. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The characteristic is a, this one is a bookend of the whole list. A kind of summary. Believers are called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The list began with lover of self. In other words, we're to love God more than anything else. More, more than money. More than love. More than sex. More than career. More than power. More than the thrill of excitement. More than rock climbing and hiking and whatever is your thing. This person has no real love for God. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, if you have true love, if you really love Jesus, the fruit of that love will be obedience, joyful obedience. You, you'll love obeying Christ. It'll, it'll fill your heart with joy. You'll know that he did that in you. And, and the worst thing in the world is, is to think that you're, that you're full of guilt and, you're, and rightfully so because you've not been living in obedience. Believers know that, that ache, the pain in the heart. The fruit of love for God is happy, joyful obedience to his word. But these people have no joy in God because they have little love for God. They love fleshly pleasure instead. And Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. Not you should not. You cannot worship God and money or anything else. And notice how Paul sums up the whole list in verse 5. They have an appearance, the form, the shape of godliness, but they deny its power. It's self-evident that they have no interest in the power of the gospel to change their life. What kind of power? The power to humble yourself and love other people. The power to exercise self-control. The power to use money for the good of others rather than just always gratifying your own lusts. It's the power to live in a manner that makes Christ preeminent rather than self. You see, the first lesson for ministering in an age of apostasy is don't let yourself get caught off guard. Don't think that if people aren't responding, there must be something wrong with the message. And, and here's practically where this goes. 
right? So a church leadership team says, man, this is not working. This is not working. Just preaching and praying and fellowshipping, serving the community, it's not working. I mean, if we're going to have a better response, we've got to change some things. And all kinds of, of crazy ecclesiologies have come out of that, philosophies of how to do church. And, and so many church growth books have come along and have said, if we don't in, reinvent the church, then it will dissolve in 20 years. Uh, that particular book was written uh, 30 years ago. And here we are. And some believe the true church is larger than it's ever been. Although the persecution is growing. It, the Lord's building his church. It's what last week's sermon was all about, right? Jesus is building his church. But here's the thing. Within the church, there are the wheat and the tares. And as someone once said, the tares will always be uh, larger and better funded. But who cares? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Our call is not to worry about the results. Our call is to be faithful to the word. Faithful to the Lord by proclaiming his truth. So don't try to remake the message or to make it palatable. Rather, expect a general apostasy. Expect, expect that that people are going to be misguided, that they're going to be poorly, tra poorly trained. And then do something about it. Love them, serve them, gently correct them. Perhaps God will use you to rescue them from the snare of the devil. Expect that even some who call themselves Christians will balk at the truth when confronted with it. You just stay faithful. You just take the meal that the Lord has offered and get it to the table without messing it up. Feed it to people. It will bring life, and it's the only thing that brings life. And this is the theme of this passage. And we'll see it clearly as we approach verse 16. As I said at the beginning, Paul reminds Timothy of the origin and sufficiency of Scripture. And we'll see that when we get to the end of this chapter and then the other the beginning of the next chapter. But the conclusion is this. Timothy, stay true to the word. Stay true to the word. This is your weapon. This is how you do your work. It's your tool. It's the only one you have. I mean, besides prayer. Right? Preach and pray. Preach and pray. And so this is the theme. And as you've listened to Paul list these characteristics of apostasy, if you listen honestly, you may see something of yourself. And perhaps you're a lover of self. Perhaps you were taught to be a lover of self, and now you just, you just can't, you're just having a really hard time breaking free of that. You know what, can I just encourage you? We all have a hard time breaking free of that. Every one of us in this room are psychology, psychologized to a degree. And even if we didn't have psychology, we would still love self. Uh, that's the root of sin. And perhaps you're, you're an abuser, and you, you just can't find a wherewithal to change. Listen, this passage isn't about condemning you. 
This passage is about exposing the sin that is in you. And perhaps you're a lover of money. And can I just say that this, this morning that there is hope for you. There is hope for you. You know, I was tempted to just breeze through this passage and get on to the good stuff in verse 16. And we'll get there. But you know what? Every word of God is true. And every word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that all sounds negative because the context is negative. It is also for your joy and righteousness. It's for your stability in life. It's for your good. It's for your flourishing. It's for your healing. Can I just say this morning that if, if you find yourself entrapped by one or more of these apostate, heart-dominating sins, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. You know what Jesus says? Come to me, all of you who are weary and are burdened with a heavy load, and I will give you, what's the word? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Be my disciple. For I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And you know what? The more you bear his yoke, the easier it gets. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Do you remember the term blasphemer? That was in the list. You know what's really interesting about that word? Paul used it to describe himself. Paul called himself a blasphemer. He confessed, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent of Christ, but the Lord had mercy on me. He changed me. And you know what? The Lord can have mercy on you if you want it. The Lord can change you if you want it. The Lord can rescue you, redeem you, save you, transform you. You will never be perfect in this life. But you will have everything that you need to live in a manner that not only gives God glory, but brings you great, great joy. One time Paul even referred to himself as the chief of sinners. You see, my friend, having a relationship with God in Jesus Christ begins by being honest about who you are. The law of God was never intended to make you righteous. It was intended to reveal God's standard of righteousness, to expose our unrighteousness so that we would be prompted to fly to Christ for mercy. That is not directly the message that Paul has here. What he's saying is, Timothy, be careful because it may surprise you how many people in church have no clue about these gracious, glorious realities. And it's your job to teach it, to preach it, to exhort with it, regardless of how people respond. Just be faithful with the word. Minister the word. Preach the word. Teach the word. Counsel the word. Minister the word in 10,000 ways. That is how God changes the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you for reminding us of your view of sin in the church. 
Help us, Father, to adopt the same view of sin that you have. Now, that's what confession is, really. The word itself means to say the same thing as God, to say the same thing about our sin as God. And Lord, we confess. We confess, Lord, apart from your spirit, apart from the resident Christ, we would be lost and hell-bound sinners. But by the grace of God, we would go there. But you have been gracious to us. And you have taught us by the gospel, the same gospel that saves, instructs us to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Lord, we have tasted the joy of that. And we just want those around us to taste it as well and to see that the Lord is good, that his ways are better. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. Give us the courage to be faithful with the ministry of your word, we pray in Jesus' name.